back, a young Atlanta rapper exploded onto the mainstream like a pumped up powder keg lit up with a stick of cartoon dynamite. His name was Lil Nas X. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Country music's funny like that. It has values, or it says it does anyhow. It prizes certain sounds, certain artists, certain stories. What it prizes above all else is something called authenticity. Ugh. Authenticity. The word drives me nuts. What's real? What's not real? Who decides? And who cares? Some people will say you're inauthentic if you add a rap beat to a country track. Others will say the pinnacle of authenticity is dressing up like a bedraggled Civil War soldier and playing jug band music when, according to the calendar, it's 1968. Authenticity. Ugh. It's a contentious, vexing, and frankly, very annoying concept. And it's one that This Is Pop tries to disentangle by looking at some historical collisions between the genres of pop and country. Welcome to This Is Pop, the podcast, a podcast about the docuseries This Is Pop, produced by Banger Films and now streaming globally on Netflix. My name is John Semley, and I worked on the show, and I work on this podcast. I'm working on it right now. You might say that I am authentically the host of the podcast. Or am I? This podcast digs below the surface of each episode with behind-the-scenes anecdotes from the directors and the production team, paired with insight from cultural critics and the artists featured in the series. Today, we'll be talking all about country, pop, the hybrid genre country pop, and what country game changers like Lil Nas X and Shania Twain have in common with certified icons like Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson. So, let's mosey. So we are joined now by Natalie Weiner. Natalie is a music critic whose work has been featured in Billboard, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Jazz Times, and NPR. She currently writes the newsletter Don't Rock the Inbox, which is a newsletter about country music. Welcome, Natalie. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, what can I say? It's my pleasure. Um, let's... Let's open this up. Let's open up the table with a very general question. What is most intriguing to you about the landscape of country music today? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, I think what's interesting about it right now is just how different artists are sort of interfacing with a more mainstream branch of popular music than they have in a while. I mean, I think kind of the place of country in sort of the overall pop zeitgeist has kind of ebbed and flowed over its history. And we're at a point where there's a much closer relationship than there has been in a while. Just there are more country kind of stylings and songs that are kind of crossing over to people who may or may not like consider themselves country listeners overall. Um, and it's just sort of interesting always to think about why that's happening um, right now, how it's happening. I mean, I think like the way that specifically TikTok has kind of like mainstreamed country culture in a lot of ways is, is pretty fascinating. But um, can, can you yeah. tell me a bit about that? Because I'm way too old. I look at TikTok and I, have no idea what's going on half the time. Uh, how are today's youth? That doesn't make me sound old to say it like that. Uh, but how are today's youth uh, getting into country or country culture or the signifiers of country music? Well, I think 
you know, we've had so many conversations in the past decade, two decades, you know, very necessary conversations about appropriation, about like when it's a, when it's okay to sort of, you know, celebrate somebody else's culture, you know, and when it's like actually just stealing, you know? And so I think what's made countries such a convenient thing for a lot of young people to adopt on TikTok, like wearing a cowboy hat or kind of like playing a kitschy country song or whatever, like you're basically never going to get in trouble for appropriating country music (laughs) because it's been coded as white incorrectly for such a long time. But like the only people who would call you out are like old grandpas who are like, this isn't real country music, you know, but who cares what they think, you know? So instead I think it's just sort of like fun for everybody, you know, to kind of like be like Western and, you know, because there is like this whole separate interesting culture with very clear signifiers and kind of like, I do think a lot of it plays into a kitsch thing, but I also think the idea that suddenly this is like public property is a cool one, you know, that this isn't just for like certain people who live in the boonies. It's like, no, we can all do this. And it's kind of fun. Do you think that this reflects, uh, you know, maybe previous eras of the country pop crossover? You know, I think of guys like Garth Brooks and they were sort of criticized Mm -hmm. as being like, oh, you're a hat act. Like the only thing that's country about is that you're wearing this cowboy hat. What were those sort of criticisms of of mainstream or appropriation? Do they reflect anything happening today? I mean, Garth is an interesting analog. I think that like, I think the way that people are sort of using these little country signifiers, like, you know, cowboy hats and whatever is a little different than the way he did because he was still sort of, he came up in like a conventionally country way. You know, he was like playing honky tonks and like, you know, he did it the hard way, even if people didn't want to acknowledge that necessarily. I think now the, the ways that country is being accessed are more about inclusivity and openness. I think that's what social media is bringing that maybe like Garth Brooks, even if he took some aesthetic risks and took some sort of like some crossover risks, like with the music specifically, you know, kind of going in rock directions, going in pop directions, it wasn't necessarily with the idea of like, I want to bring more people to this music, you know, or bring more people into this culture. So I think that's kind of a little bit of the difference. But obviously, like I said, there's kind of been this crossover ebb and flow for a really long time. It seems more playful these days. Like it's not about I'm right, stealing right. this or I'm trying to get away with something. It's like, hey, this hat looks cool. Yeah, it's like it's just exaggeration for effect. And like I said, it's that feeling that like, you know, if you go on TikTok and you are wearing a sombrero or if you're dressed up in like indigenous like indigenous outfits or, you know, that's obviously offensive. <laughs> you know, like it's really like terrible. And I think there's an increasing awareness that like that's a bad move and don't do it because you're hurting a lot of people by doing that. But if you like put on a cowboy hat and wear a little handkerchief, like who are you hurting really? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like it's just kind of a fun, like costume kitsch camp thing, you know? And anyone who calls that out is really just calling themselves out in a way as being an old fart. Exactly. And like, there's certainly plenty of people who are like, well, I actually work on a farm or I live on a dirt road and this isn't real. But if they're going to call that out, they have to call out like 90% of the country music stars, you know, like, it's not like Luke Bryan is out like 
in the backwoods actually doing, you know what I mean? So it's sort of like these questions of authenticity, you know, you would have to go all the way to the top. (laughs) Have you ever seen a cattle being born? There's all these ropes and chains involved. Nobody wants anything to do with that, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, Now, to look at the sort of history of country and pop, how would you describe the mechanics of a crossover country pop hit? You know, what is it taking from country? What is it taking from pop? Is it a country song that becomes a pop song? Is it a pop song that becomes a country song? What's the kind of general oh, trend? I think, I mean, one of my favorite examples, I think, is like the Dixie Chick or the Chicks, sorry. <laughs> the artist formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. Um, like, because just the way that they cut through in the late 90s, along with Shania Twain, you know, Faith Hill, these women who really just had such an important impact on the zeitgeist of that period, it was because of really strong country songwriting. Like people remember the lyrics to all of those songs and they remember the melodies because they're distinctive and strong and potent, you know? And so I think it it came, it comes from combining those things that country has always been known for, which is like a really deep Uh, emphasis on lyrics um, and melody and being singable, you know, like one of the things that really shocked me, I saw Garth Brooks at Yankee Stadium probably, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago. And they put the lyrics to his songs on the Jumbotron, you know, to encourage people to sing along, like, because that's why you're there. Like, you just want to, like, sing Garth songs. Um, It's not just about watching him perform. It's about being part of it. Um, So, so yeah, so I think it's, it's that lyrics it's that lyrical content it's the melodies and then what makes it pop is just when you get the hooks involved and when you can kind of like when the fiddle is playing such a complementary role an ornamental role and not necessarily like a core role like we're not like walking the floor honky-tonk style but there's like just enough of that like whatever the contemporary pop aesthetic was I mean if you look at like Old Town Road you know the hip hop element is what carried that past country, you know, but there were still obvious aesthetic signifiers that like, this is coming from a country tradition, you know? So I think at the beginning of the thing, it's like the lyrics and the melody, like that's what country brings to the table that not every single genre of popular music places such a huge degree of importance on, but the pop thing is like, is more trend based, I guess. To talk about right now, just because you brought it up, I mean, how do you think the political context have changed? You know, you mentioned the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, who obviously were essentially railroaded for criticizing George W. Mm -hmm. Bush back in the day. I remember even recently when Garth Brooks played the Biden inauguration, it was sort of seen as this like olive branch to conservatives, but a lot of people reacted poorly. You have Dolly Parton kind of being this like catch-all beloved figure who everyone adores, even if they can only name two of her songs. Uh, I mean, have this sort of, have artists kind of crossed the aisle politically or does this just speak to the kind of widespread, massive popularization of the music in a way that kind of transcends, you know, political cliches about country and Western music? Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, it's an interesting question. I feel like right in this moment, we're seeing kind of a polarization that mirrors the political polarization of our country in general. You know, like within country music, there is, I think, kind of a terrifying subgenre that 
is explicitly plain to fascism. You know, at least that's the way that I see it. And then on the opposite side, there's a lot more music that's focusing on inclusivity, focusing on projecting a progressive viewpoint, you know. And then there is mostly on the radio stuff that's kind of trying to play to the middle, trying to stay out of the fray, whatever. Um, But as you look at country's history, I think the reputation for conservatism is earned much of the time, but there has always been a counterpunch. You know what I mean? Even in these periods when country was, you know, when country stars were playing at KKK fundraisers and all of this like terrible stuff that we really, you know, looking back on it is horrifying and distressing and is enough to make you question, you know, is it worth even thinking about this genre in a critical way? Because there's so much toxic history. But there's always been a counter narrative, you know, people who were writing songs and performing songs, even if sometimes they didn't get as much play. Um, But from a perspective of inclusivity to some degree, you know, to a progressive political viewpoint. Um, So it's like whenever I try and like talk to people who I don't think listen to country music, it's about um, it's about emphasizing like your ideas about this music are not necessarily wrong. You know, I can't come in and say like, oh, this is a bastion of progressiveness. Like, that's not true. But I do think it's always more complicated than that. So, you know, you go back to the 60s and 70s and there are people writing songs like that point to, if not necessarily like, you know, anti-establishment, Actually, you know, anti-establishment thought is a pretty big strain in country music. It just goes sometimes the wrong way, but I think not the Depends wrong way. Depends on the nature of the, the establishment. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, like, But yeah. Do you think that history has a way of kind of shifting the way we think about these things? Because a lot of the big stars who you would think of as definitive, traditional, classic uh, epitomes of country music, people like Loretta Lynn or Hank Williams, mm-hmm. I mean, when they came around, they ruffled a lot of feathers. There was no sense that this is necessarily within some tradition. In fact, they were kind of right. disrupting certain traditions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think within every genre of pop, you know, it's like that's always going to be a shortcut to visibility, right? Is to challenge the establishment. You know, that's how you get attention is to do something that people don't believe um, is right or within the conventional narrative or whatever. You know, it's just an easy way to get attention for yourself. I actually wrote a piece about Loretta Lynn recently. um, And just in the course of doing the research for that, reading about the pill, reading about sort of how she basically used sort of feminist jargon as like a marketing tool, you know? I think the degree to which she saw herself as a feminist is extremely up for debate. You know, I don't, she was sort of, it was, it all came from a deep pragmatism. You know, she was like, yes, it's easier for women to live if they don't get beat up by their husbands every day when they come home. You know, it's like, this isn't like, I'm for women's live, you know, it was just kind of like, well, this is true in my experience. And like, it seems to get people's attention and work from a marketing perspective. So I think she was very savvy about sort of seeing like, well, if this gets my song in the news, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to keep singing about this stuff. Um, But yeah, so totally what you're saying is true. Like, I think if anything right now in country, like, the stuff that's at the top of the charts is a lot more homogenous than it has been in a lot of country history. And I don't necessarily have 
a great explanation for why that is, but I think like uh, the kind of white men singing bland love songs thing, like that is not really a good way to paint all of country history, you know, for the past hundred years. That's really like a past five to 10 years phenomenon, (laughs) you know, like there's been a lot more rough edges in the past and I don't really know why the country radio aspect has gone so conservative recently. You, you talk about the pragmatism, and I always I remember reading once about Merle Haggard's song Oki from Muskogee, which is this kind mm-hmm. of anti-Vietnam, anti-hippie song, but he wrote it almost with tongue-in-cheek. And then people were like, hey, this song hates hippies and is pro the <laughs> Vietnam War. And he was just like, okay, that's what the song's about then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you never know how people are going to pick up on these things. Now, a word that kind of comes up a lot in country music is this idea of authenticity. And it's like, it's almost embarrassing to talk about now. Like, it used to be such a hotly contested idea. Are you real? Are you not real? And it's weird because I think in my mind, the genre seems so far apart, but the only genre I can think of that is as obsessed with authenticity is like punk music, right? Where it's like everything Hmm. you do is in conversation with this notion of your intention, how you fit into tradition, if you mean it, if you don't mean it. Has country sort of seen a reckoning with this idea of authenticity and how has the concept of the quote unquote authentic country star evolved over time? I mean, that it's such an interesting question. And I think anybody who's living, wow, I can't talk. (laughs) Anybody who's listening to mainstream country radio, to commercial country radio, if they try to talk about what is and isn't quote unquote real country music, their opinion is basically moot because nothing that's on the radio right now is like neo like there was a neo-traditional period in the 80s but that's not what's happening right now what's happening right now is very much on the pop end of the spectrum um anyone who tries to talk about how a country artist isn't authentic if that's the kind of zeitgeist they're looking at it's only racism like that's the only thing like it's happened a lot with like kane brown and you know jimmy allen people like that you know if they're saying this person is not real country that's only a race thing because uh, aesthetically they sound like everybody else on country radio the other aspect I think that's interesting is looking at the Americana country divide, which is where a lot more of the authenticity stuff comes in. And that, I think, works the opposite way and sort of disregards a long history of pop country. You know, if you're looking at country music today and saying, well, Sturgill Simpson is real country and nothing else is, you know, that's kind of ignoring, you know, people like Shania Twain, people like, you know, I'm trying to think of some other good examples. Um, in the 80s, there was this whole phase of like disco country that I personally love, you know, a lot of like Kenny Rogers stuff, you know, and that's right. that's country too. You know, to say that that's not legitimate, I think is a is a mistake. Also, Sturgill Simpson rocks, but he recently put out like an electro single with an anime inspired music video. So, (laughs) yeah. uh, And so I think it's like anytime you're trying to draw lines around what is and isn't like legitimate country, you know, that's where you're going to run into trouble. Well, one of the big flashpoints for this conversation in recent years was uh, Old Town Road. Uh, Mm -hmm. When we look back at the sort of legacy of Old Town Road and Lil Nas X, was this just a kind of flash in the pan or did it have a way of, you know, legitimately revolutionizing or kind of upending how we think about country music and pop music and frankly, hip hop? I mean, my hope 
is that we haven't seen the last of the Old Town Road repercussions. I think it shoved open a lot of doors in a crucial way. You know, it really couldn't be more important for Little Nas X to kind of say, I have a right to this music. You know, that I, this is completely legitimate for me to make this song. And if you say otherwise, like you're only showing your ass, you know? Um, but it hasn't necessarily had the kind of um, ripple effect that I might have hoped, you know, on country radio of sort of encouraging more inclusivity, like, and more inclusivity from a demographic perspective and from an aesthetic perspective, because I think Old Town Road, like, was really new sounding. And that's one of the reasons it was so successful. And I would love to hear more stuff like that within the country radio zeitgeist. Um, and so not quite getting there yet, but I hope that in the future there might be more. I think, unfortunately, there might be a little bit of backlash among the country radio world, you know, to sort of like, I don't know, driving home. They just want to reassert their power, I think, in some ways. And like Lil Nas X was such a powerful disruption to like what they had built that I think them being like, no, we get to decide what country music sounds like maybe has been a little bit of an effect. But I think in the grand scheme of things, saying everybody has a right to country music and country sounds and like you can make a song that uses these ideas and it can reach everyone, you know, just sort of breaking down that idea that like, you know, country music is something different. And for some people, you know, because I think there's plenty of people who are like, well, I listen to everything except country. And that's like a mentality born of country music saying we don't want you, <laughs> you know? So I think that right. Lil Nas X um, challenging that is super important. And I hope we haven't seen the last of the effects from that song. Do you think that importance was was help or helped or hurt by his recent single? And, you know, I mean, that's not a, a country song, I don't think, by any real stretch. But do you think that if he would have come out with another big banger country song, people would be like, OK, he loves country music and now he's allowed? Uh, I mean, obviously, I personally believe he can do whatever the hell he wants and right. should be encouraged to right. do so. Uh, but do you think that the legacy of Old Town Road was kind of changed by not Lil Nas X's failure, but I guess his refusal to sort of keep a foot in the country world? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people in Nashville who view him as a dilettante, you know, and who if he had like decided to really like double down on country, like they would have seen Old Town Road as more credible. But I don't know that those people's opinions are really worth considering. I do like I think his not continuing to be a part of country discourse in, you know, proactively has maybe made it more difficult for people like Breland and Rashad, an artist I really like a lot, to sort of continue the post-Old Town Road aesthetic trajectory, you know? Like, if they had sort of a big Lil Nas X country single, like another one, then they could sort of ride those coattails more easily. But, um, but like, I don't, you know, at the end of the day, like you're saying, you know, he's he's an artist and I fully, you know, I think we can hardly ask for more innovation than that single. So, so yeah. yeah. 
and I think generally the concept of being a dilettante gets a bad rap. I mean, it suggests like some sort of carelessness or unseriousness, right. but it, it really just means that you're interested in a thing until you exhaust your interest in it and then move on to something else. And what uh, no, better way to live life is there than that? No, I totally agree. And, you know, that's one of the things that has made country music boring, you know, when they insist mm -hmm. that like, well, if you only you have to only do country music and you have to only do it this way and anything else is not real, you know, and if a pop artist tries to make a country album like that can't be, you know, normal or good when, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's it's again, it's this sort of artificial boundary creation where yeah. really it's all just music, you know. Now, when we look at the relationship of country and pop, there's always these kind of like actions and reactions. And to that end, can you tell me a bit about the so-called yeehaw agenda, uh, what that is and how that sort of came to define the the latter half of the 2010s? I mean, it the yeehaw agenda, I mean, was created by a specific person whose name I can't remember at this moment, but was a woman who started an account with that term. And, you know, she sort of just started emphasizing the history of black cowboy and cowgirl and country culture, you know, and that is a very important intervention in country history, you know, and the fact that it really, it was done, you know, with her Twitter account and I imagine probably other social media platforms too, just, but the fact that that's where it happened, I think, is really telling, you know, it wasn't happening at an institutional level that people were going back and correcting these histories. It was happening because a woman saw a gap and she decided like, no, I'm going to tell how it really is. And that black people have as much or more a right to this culture as any white person, you know? And so that kind of open, you know, that made, it created a framework to understand Lil Nas X as like a part of a history and not an anomaly, you know? And it also sort of like, you know, because Old Town Road grew on TikTok, it kind of, it all fits together with this idea that like some social media forces have made it easier for people to understand that everyone has a right to country music. Um, and, you know, sort of pictures of Beyonce and a cowboy hat from 2002, you know, that sort of shows it's like, this isn't a new thing, you know, it's, mm -hmm. this is going back all the way to the beginning. I mean, Ray Charles, Modern Sounds of Country and Western Music. It's just kind of like you, it really doesn't take much digging at all to sort of be like our conventional understanding of what it means to make country music is wrong, what it means to live in the country, what it means to have like a rural experience or work on a ranch. You know, it's not just white people who have done this and it's never just been white people who have done this. So I think the Yeehaw Agenda just made, was a great name for that correction, you know? Um, yeah. And that Twitter account, I believe, belonged to Brie Malandro. Is that, does that sound right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is exactly our, her name. Thank you. Um, our producer, Melissa, dropped it in. I don't want to act like I just knew that off the top of my head. So. <laughs> no, I appreciate it because I just, I'm, my memory is gone. But well, it's, no, no, it's all, 
It's all good. I mean, we always think about where things are going and moving forward, but I'm wondering if stuff like the Yeehaw Agenda can help us reconceive of the history of country music. We had another conversation on this podcast about how, you know, essentially blues music came from a shared tradition with Mm -hmm. rural white people, and that became hillbilly music, which was for white people, and then blues music was for black people, but all the songs came from the sort of same traditions and often songwriters, and they were just sort of, by virtue of marketing and racism, siloed off into different categories. And do you think that that these sort of current conversations, they don't only allow us to conceive of a more inclusive future, but to understand that history in a way that's more inclusive? Oh, no, 100%. I mean, it's a very necessary, like, I think plenty of people just take for granted that these um, genre divisions are, you know, indicative of some aesthetic thing when they're not, you know, it's all made up, you know, it's always been made up. And so it's like you're saying, it's a racist marketing tool. I mean, there's plenty of great arguments for never using genre ever again, you know, to describe any music. Um, But we do because it makes it easier to talk about them and stuff. But yes, I think just correcting our understanding of basically popular music history in the United States as something that has always been defined and divided around race, you know, like that's, that's a core element and it still exists. I mean, that's why we have to keep having these conversations about like, what is wrong with country radio? Why are we using urban music, quote unquote, as a category, you know, like that's, it's so irrational. And I mean, like I worked at Billboard, you know, that was, my first real journalism job and just like going back in the chart history and seeing how the hot hip hop R&B songs chart used to be called hot black singles. And that was in like the 1980s, you know? So it's like, we're really like saying the quiet part out loud doesn't even begin to cover it. You know, this is just kind of how the music has been divided and it's arbitrary and unfair and the yeehaw agenda and sort of the, the movement that's, I think, followed it to really uh, intentionally and explicitly promote Black artists and country music has been a super, super necessary intervention and a very belated one. Now to think about the future a little bit, where do you think we're going next in country and pop and country and pop? You know, what is the future of this genre? Well, we keep having these sort of tensions. And I guess my big question is, in in what extent do these sort of tensions between traditionalism and intervention, to what extent do those drive the music forward? I mean, I think there is a really rich history. And like you're saying, sort of talking about it and reckoning with it and sort of understanding that it's arbitrary, but also like digging into it is provides some really fruitful music. I mean, I think about Charlie Crockett, you know, who's an artist who gets put under the Americana banner, but his music is definitely very country. I mean, he grew up in Texas, sort of like going to honky tonks and being rooted in that. But there is like kind of some soul elements, some R&B element, but it's like at the end of the day, it's just not even really useful to use most of those terms. I mean, I think he's comfortable with country now, but like the point is that it's good music and it kind of goes with all of it and it's very historically informed, but it doesn't sound old, you know, which is awesome. Um, and I think my personal hypothesis is that the growth of streaming will continue to 
push country radio to an ever more marginalized place because the number of people who listen to the radio on a regular basis is just going to continue to shrink. You know, there's just no, you know, streaming is kind of the next thing. And so that will allow just by nature of the kind of way that streaming works, a slightly more democratic, you know, a way for people to become really famous. I mean, obviously record labels still have a huge impact in that, but I do think we've seen, I mean, Old Town Road is again, the pitch perfect example, but just how artists are sort of able to exploit the internet to disrupt a place where country radio has been like the and I'll be all for so long, you know? So I think the future of country music is hopefully a more diverse one aesthetically and demographically because of the internet. And I'm not saying that streaming is a net positive even for artists, but I just see that sort of that shift coming. I'm hopeful for it. And now just one last question. The name of the series is This Is Pop. So I like to ask as kind of a, you know, final question. Uh, what is pop music to you and, you know, how does the intersection of country music and pop music shape how we can kind of understand what the unruly category of pop is? <laughs> I mean, pop, I think, is at the end of the day, I mean, popular. I don't know. It's probably really basic to say that. It's just music a lot of people listen to. And, you know, working at Billboard, that was when I really started getting into country because it made me understand a lot of people listen to this music. Like I should probably be paying attention to what's going on with it. You know, it's not really fair for me to just write off something that is resonating with so many people, you know? So that makes me want to understand why is it connecting with so many people? Why do they want this music in their life? And I think like at the end of the day, like that's what popular music is. It's music that's connecting with a lot of people. And for some reason, for some people, <laughs> that might be a sign that it's, you know, appealing to the lowest common denominator, or that it's boring or whatever. But I tend to have a higher estimation of the general public maybe than that. And I, I think it's always interesting, you know, when you go to a concert and everybody's singing along to every word, like that means something, you know? Um, so, so yeah, and country pop, I mean, I just, like I've said, I think I look forward to seeing the ways that it shifts. And I think that the sort of, I hope that its history gets more respect in the near future, because I think it's really often just like written off as completely irrelevant, you know? And I right. think there is a long history of great, great music that falls into that category, so... Yeah, I, th I think you're right about that lowest common denominator point. I mean, it's always been my opinion that if you condescend and have contempt for the public, they'll never mm -hmm. disappoint you. Uh, but right. if you <laughs> approach that I idea of popular taste with a little bit of uh, generosity and intelligence, uh, right. you're surprised more often than not. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, and there's, I mean, there are pop songs that make me sad. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to like go so far as to say, I think it's all great, but I do think it's important to like keep thinking about, it. I mean, you know, like we've been all, I think all music critics have kind of optimism, whatever, that's been a thing for a long time, but you know, you kind of all, everything in moderation, keeping balanced approach to all of it. I like that. 
Balance. Fair and balanced. That's what we say here on Fox News. Um, (laughs) Natalie Weiner, thank you so much for chatting. Uh, Where can people find you if they want to read your stuff or do you have anything uh, you'd like to shout out? Um, I mean, I tweet most of my articles. My Twitter handle is just my name. It's at Natalie Weiner. Um, and I do have a website. It's just NatalieWeiner.com. And of course, subscribe to Don't Rock the Inbox, which I do with um, Marissa Moss, who's another great, great country writer. So, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, it is my pleasure to be joined by This Is Pop series producer, Amanda Burt, and the episode's director, one Simon Ennis. Hello to you. Hey, John. Hey, Simon. Howdy, y'all. Now, Simon, you said howdy there, which I believe is a traditional country and Western (laughs) greeting. What is the derivation of the term, and do you feel comfortable using it? Um, I am going to completely guess and speculate that it's, uh, uh, comes from how do you do, but is, is condensed and shortened. Um, that being said, uh, my authentic country, uh, parlance, um, is completely inauthentic. So, uh, yes, in the post, uh, making this episode of this is pop slash old town road era, I am very comfortable being writing that authenticity divide and saying howdy <laughs> to y'all. What a good answer. I was just being a smart ass to make fun of you. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I got that. <laughs> you've earned your spurs and can say howdy with impunity. Um, let's be serious here, folks, because there's nothing funny about the intersection of country and pop music. Uh, this episode as a whole, it tries to kind of scratch at this idea of authenticity. God might tongue stumbles, I can barely say it, authenticity in country music. Uh, At what point in the production process did it become clear that looking at this idea of authenticity was going to be an important idea or a a focal point? Simon? Well, it's it's funny you asking me that as uh, you were there and writing the episode. Um, But (laughs) uh, (laughs) so you may even disagree with me, but I think that the that that came out of um, when I was brought in to direct this and you were brought in to write it. We inherited um, an amazing interview with Shania Twain that Amanda uh, had uh, had done about a week, I think, before I came on or so. Um, and it was, a, it was a really interesting way to get involved in a project. I'd never done something like this before where we showed up, we had this awesome Shania Twain interview that we sort of inherited and we could go in almost any direction with it. So it could have just been the Shania Twain story. It could have just been women in country music from Dolly to Shania to Taylor Swift. It could have been literally almost anything. And we ended up, you know, focusing on that country pop divide and trying to find, you know, trying to trying to situate that in history. So, you know, I know at one point we were we were talking about, you know, going all the way back to like Patsy Cline uh, or, you know, go back to the 50s, you know, in one iteration. I know we were even talking about you and I like, you know, what about when country and sort of. Pop and rock uh, coalesced in the late 60s and early 70s with, you know, the Rolling Stones or the Birds or uh, Graham Parsons, that kind of stuff. And I think that the word authenticity or a word that was very close to it and spawn that came out of Amanda's interview with Shania because 
I remember watching that interview, you know, again and again and again in that first few weeks of us trying to generate an idea and her being her, her really kind of going into what it felt like to go down to Nashville, do what she wanted to do and be challenged about it and be picked on about it and be kind of, you know, told that she wasn't country enough or, you know, she had to do certain things to be country. You know, when we're talking about a, a woman that grew up listening to country music and all kinds of music in rural Ontario, you know, a, a very it's Canada, but Canada has a country music tradition, too. Um, you know, it, it has a has a very authentic sounding country background. So I think it was it was it definitely sprang another kind of uh, funny, ridiculous, overused word sprang organically out of that interview. And I think the idea of exploding this notion of authenticity uh, in country music and when it meets with pop from both sides, from all sides, and eventually just demolishing it was uh, was what got me excited about it and what uh, I think got you know our, our entire team excited about it. Now, uh, if I can get a little bit personal with this, it kind of leads into our next question. But when we were talking about this idea of authenticity, around this time, Simon, you and I went to see the Martin Scorsese documentary, The Rolling Thunder Review, about the uh, early 70s Bob Dylan tour, which is very much a kind of documentary and a tour that was about the notion of telling truths from behind a mask or an artifice. Uh, I'm wondering how that idea played into, in particular, the selection of the the host and how the host kind of frames the episode and the story. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Orville, uh, man, we lucked out with him and he did a wonderful job. Um, well, I think as we were, as we were sort of reaching out to figure out who the hell was going to be in our episode, um, which, you know, was an ongoing process from basically the very beginning to the end. We knew we had Shania and then were we going to try and get Dolly Parton? Were, you know, I mean, there were dozens and dozens of names, um, from well before Shania's time to the current day that came through. And I know that there was sort of a push from uh, from everyone uh, to to find some you know some current uh, some current musicians some current artists that would tick a bunch of boxes. Number one, be of the moment. Number two, be really interesting. Number three, hopefully have good music. And number four, and this was I think a big concern, especially for you actually. You know, we didn't want to bring in somebody that was that was you know new and up and coming, but may not be around in a couple of years. Um, so there were a lot of names that were sort of you know came across us from our, our research team and from from the other uh, Chase producers that we were working with, and uh, and Sam Hall gave us Orville among a few people. And I know some of the some of the people um, some of the suggestions that we were given we weren't particularly interested in, but. Orville, uh, as he does, because he's a you know bona fide star even before he became a star, uh, he just totally stood out. Um, and I think that he he immediately embodied a bunch of stuff that was really helpful for what we were looking at. Number one, he's very now and very new. Number two, he has an amazing pop look. I mean, the mask is like such a such a pop aesthetic. But he also is playing with and pulling from the aesthetics of classic country, traditional country, both visually and in his the sound of his music, but taking them, bringing them to the present and doing something new with them, 
opening it up and he's um he's he's shattering the 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 sort of traditional country world's perception that you know there isn't there isn't lgbt um artists in country um and doing something really really special with that i mean amanda and i uh had the opportunity to actually see him perform in new york and um when we were going to film nico case and steve earl he just happened to be playing and, and gave us tickets and it was like a r- unbelievably moving thing to, to watch him because you saw, you know, tons and tons and tons of gay people who felt included in music that they loved for sort of the first time. It was unbelievably beautiful and moving. And also his his record was great, too. So it was wonderful to kind of get him involved. And I I had this idea early on that I wanted to do something stylistically that likened back to just an aesthetic I love, which is, you know, the old Johnny Cash show, old hee-haw, old grand old Opry TV show from the 50s and 60s. So I thought that would be a really kind of cool element to bring into uh, into our episode and, you know, build this crazy set and make something that looked old-timey, but also super current and poppy and a little bit psychedelic, which is just something that we like anyway. And Orville just fit perfectly into that world. And you know, the, if, if you look at, at Hee Haw or the Johnny Cash show or something like that, you know, in the seventies, you had a country star as your host. So who better to do that, um, for us than Orville? I mean, Lil Nas X would have worked too, but, but Orville is even more in the country world. So Orville was just perfect. And he, uh, he loved the idea as soon as we, we talked to him and, and, and did a terrific job. So we were just so lucky to have him. And then, of course, he became a much bigger star than we could than we even would have imagined at the time. Now, you initially interviewed a designer named Manuel Cuevas for this episode. Tell us a bit about him and what you hoped his perspective would add to the overall theme. Yeah, that was um, that was an amazing shoot, and I'm sad that it didn't make it into the episode. But in in the end, we just sort of had too much, and it would have been a bit more of a tangent. Well, Manuel um, is uh, Man- Manuel basically came up as a, as a country uh, designer um, of nudie suits. I mean, he worked with nudie and then eventually went, uh, went on his own. And he designed a lot of the most famous nudie suits that you can think of um, in country history, including the Graham Parsons, um, you know, the white suit with the pot leaves and the, and the, and the, the opium poppies and everything. Um, Elvis's gold LeMay outfit, uh, tons of stuff for Dolly Parton, tons of stuff for Porter Wagner, Basically, um, you know, almost any, almost any iconic country suit that you've seen, uh, it, it was it was Manuel or Nudie who he first worked with. So, I think that was when we were talking about the idea of uh, that that you brought up before, John, of sort of artifice and presentation and dressing up, because that I think for us represented a symbol of where country and pop. Uh, ideas collided in this nudie suit because obviously you know you can be an authentic uh, you know farmer or 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 working on the rodeo or or, or whatever you're not going to be wearing a suit with with you know with with all this glitter on it and you're not going to wear rhinestones and all this stuff but even still it's like you know you have these traditional I'm putting in square quotes square quotes these authentic country performers in this super poppy getup you know, back since the 1940s. So I think we wanted to go and capture the idea of, of where authenticity and artifice meet. And this article of clothing 
could be a really great symbol for it. Unfortunately, it just, you know, we only had 44 minutes and, and 19 seconds or whatever, whatever it was that we had to deliver. Uh, if the movie was longer, we definitely would have. And um, I, you know, you could make a whole documentary just on Manuel. It was amazing. It was amazing to talk to him. He's in his 80s. He still runs his own, you know, bespoke uh, design tailor shop. Um, Amanda got to try on a, a, a number of the uh, of the of the jackets um, for some B roll that we we shot. That uh, that that was another another thing. There 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 were various times in shooting this uh, in shooting this doc where Amanda and I would like look at each other and just like light up or have like tears in our eyes. And uh, both Booker playing playing his piano while we were setting up lights, and also Amanda basically modeling all these incredible rhinestone cowboy jackets were uh, were two of them. But yeah, it's. Um, we we had that we had Manuel in the cut pretty far into the process, but eventually he was just the odd man out, and it has nothing to do with him not being incredible and a legend and an you know unbelievably talented designer. Uh, oh man, I'm just I'm just picturing myself in his shop again, just surrounded by these incredible clothes. And uh, yeah. yeah, I wish that there was a way to work it in, but yeah. it just didn't happen. Yeah, no, he, that was incredible. And yeah, Simon was saying that it's really about like the symbolism of those outfits, right? So just like working on it, this is going back to my philosophy degree, but in terms of the semiotics of dressing, what Manuel brought works on so many levels. It's not only that it's the the symbolism within wearing those suits means you are a country star. So if you are wearing that, that gives you another layer of authenticity to what you're doing. And you can see that even outside of the country realm, when Post Malone is wearing a version of a modern nudie suit, or Little Nas X is wearing a version of a modi- uh, modern nudie suit, that's reflecting back to this idea of authentic country, down home, real music. But that's why Graham Parsons in the late 60s was wearing a nudie suit. It's not because he was a country music star, he was boring from the traditions of country music but he was, you know, this uh, hot druggie in the desert <laughs> that was starting to play old time country music, which has now been adopted as in the country canon, but at the time wasn't by going in and wearing that kind of an outfit that brings you into it. But it's not only that kind of an outfit, it's this guy. Like he not only made, you know, outfits for all four Hank Williams, but he's the guy that just put Johnny Cash in black. Like the man in black was dressed by this dude. And this dude is the one that told him to wear all black because that would be a certain kind of look. He's also the one that put the Lone Ranger in the mask. So there's no designer or stylist. It's beyond that. It's not somebody adopting a look to put these people in. It's if you've been blessed by the Pope of outfit, who is Manuel, you are now in a very elite circle and given the opportunity and the permission to be a part of the country music realm. So yeah, it was really a thrill to meet him because he's a very old man. But if you look at his, you know, Google Manuel Cuevas, his history of dress and his impact on the look of country music um, and country Western films and all of that is, you know, there's nobody that did it more. And 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 Brandy Carlisle uh, came to our interview wearing wearing the nudie suit that Manuel uh, made for her, and he he designed all of the um, all of the suits that that Brandy's supergroup, the High Women, were wearing. 
Um, so you can, you can kind of just see like over the course of years, he's continuing to, to bless, you know, newer artists that are also kind of expanding the genre. Um, I, I don't think, well, yeah, it, it didn't make, it didn't make the actual cut, but I remember Brandy telling me in the interview, you know, what it was like to go in and have a fitting, uh, by Manuel and him, you know, and picture, picture this, this 80 year old, uh, you know, 80 year old Mexican cowboy tailor sort of walking around her and saying, like looking her up and down and saying, oh, you seem a little more like a man. That's great. I'm going to work with it for that. For I'm going to work with that. That's what I can I can work with or I can work with that or something like that. And her feeling like, you know, as as a lesbian, that that was sort of his way of accepting her and and blessing her with this. Uh, and And she just absolutely loved it. So I think you know, even if Manuel couldn't make it into the final episode, his spirit is is certainly uh, all throughout it. And what and you know, a bunch of his a bunch of his creations are on Brandy and in a lot of like stills and archive. I mean, you know, so many there's so many stills and so many old clips of uh, country mu- musicians wearing his uh, wearing his outfits. Yeah, and also I want to say about the nudie suits. I mean, this could be an episode of the series itself, season two. Uh, but one of the most famous people to wear a nudie suit, obviously, is Elvis, who was a figure who moved with grace and with a certain level of clumsiness at some point in his career is between pop and country and rock and all these things. So the nudie suit kind of seems like it's like when you win in golf and they give you that uh, green jacket, gold jacket. Which one is it? One is from Happy Gilmore and one is from Real Golf. I can't remember which one. But anyways, it's like a way of saying you're in the club now. You're legit or something like that. Yeah. And just one thing on Elvis, which actually would be an amazing podcast right there. One thing I can say about Elvis is that when we spoke to Shania, Tanya Tucker and Winona, they all said that they looked up to Elvis as the kind performer they wanted to be. Now, these are women. But there was something about Elvis that crossed all genres of music. He was just Elvis. Like, yeah, he sang country music. Yeah, he sang hillbilly music. But he was the biggest teen idol at the time, right? Like, he was this hot dude and is still loved and placed on this um, Mount Olympus of uh, artists. But the way that he performed and connected with audiences was so seductive and so uh, compelling that he really straddled all worlds of masculine, feminine, country, pop, any any of them. So it was that was not a prompt from us to, to ask, do you like Elvis? That came up naturally in terms of how do they see themselves as performers and how do they want to connect with their audiences? Elvis was a touchstone for all three of them. Yeah, that was an that was an incredible thread. I mean I that 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 would definitely be something to explore too. I mean the the legacy of Elvis on female performers because it, it was it was crazy it just it just kept coming up and it was always about like you know why Tanya Tucker in the 70s would you know get tougher and wear leather pants and you know act more like a man scare quotes um or you know how Winona would want to kind of sing sort of, you know, more blues based country music, all, all of that stuff. It's, 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 it is really fascinating. That is something that, that, uh, would have been cool to explore more, but again, it's, you know, we were so stacked with so many, um, with so many amazing people to talk about. And we had such a heady theme to deal with that. It was another thing that just went by the wayside. 
Yeah, Elvis is one of those guys. It's like the Beatles or Bob Dylan or something where you can't even start talking about them because then it just sort of shifts the entire conversation. Um, best to put it off to the side for now. But yes, uh, final verdict, Elvis, a cool and inspirational guy. <laughs> uh, now, speaking of cool and inspirational guys, uh, during the production of this episode, the Old Town Road single was like peaking in popularity and all like the the remixes and the different versions were coming out. And it does kind of feature a bit in the episode. It kind of frames up some of the themes. I wonder if you can tell me about how Old Town Road shaped the thinking through this episode and about some of the difficulties, because as you mentioned, even talking about Orville, you know, when you're in pre-production and production on a, a, a episode of television that might not come out for a year and a half or two years, what is the thinking? Because you, you you want to seize on stuff that seems popular, but then it's like, well, will anyone care about this in 18 months? And how do you kind of toe that line or straddle that line? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you and I were very worried about it um, at first. It became quite apparent that even if, and I'm glad Lil Nas is, you know, has, new, has new hits out, but even if this had just been a one-hit wonder, that it would be a one-hit wonder that would absolutely stand the test of time. But... Um, <laughs> At the first, you know, at, at the the first few weeks or maybe the first month or two, it was a concern. Like, well, is this just going to be like a song that in a few years people look back on and are just like, oh yeah, I remember that thing. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen, and we could very, you know, we, uh, you know, very easily stick to using Old Town Road as the springboard. Um, I mean, it was great that with this you know, with that, the moment of that happening, um, that made the concept that we were going for and that we were exploring and the themes that we were looking at just absolutely, you know, you know, absolutely relevant. Um, and that's, uh, that's really something I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my, my, um, relationship with that song, uh, which, and I, I will, I will cop to something that, that, people that most people won't cop to at this point. So when I first heard Old Town Road, I was really into it right away. I thought it was a really catchy song and I really dug it. Um, but being somebody that doesn't listen to any contemporary country, uh, I listen to a lot of old country of every sort of genre, pop and traditional and whatever, but haven't really listened to much country in the last 15, 20 years. As soon as I heard it and heard that there was this debate over whether it was a country song or not, I thought, no, that's not a country song. It's a rap song with, with, with you know, um, that's talking about country and has a banjo. I really like it, but I don't think it's country. And then I thought to myself, well, I don't really know what's on country radio anymore. And I remember just checking out like, okay, what, what have been a few of the number one country songs of the last couple of years? And the biggest one within like the last 18 months was a song called, uh, a song by Sam Hunt called Body Like a Back Road. And I was like, First of all, this song sucks. And second of all, this does not sound like country to me at all. If you're going to pick a song between that and, and Old Town Road, which is the more country song, it's absolutely Old Town Road. And so I did that with that song and then about three other songs and then instantly was like, okay, well, anybody saying that this song is, if those songs are country, anybody saying that this song is not country, it has just got to be racist because there's no other reason that you could possibly consider this not country if you're considering Body Like a Back Road, which is basically, you know, it says trucks and it says dirt roads, but it sounds like fourth rate 90s boy band bullshit. Um, sorry to any Sam Hunt fans around, but I just, <laughs> I, I, I just, I just remember in this bit of exploration I did hearing that song and being like, this is disgusting. Um, 
uh, from my country loving ears. Um, so then, yeah, I immediately was like, well, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, in, in the world that we're in right now, Old Town Road, a hundred percent, a country song. And I instantly became a pretty vocal advocate, uh, for it as being called a country song, you know, in my groups of friends, if it ever came up or whatever. And I think that, you know, history already has proven that correct. And, um, despite what Natalie was saying earlier in your previous interview, I would bet dollars to donuts that in 20 years, there's going to be some, you know, country music awards at the grand old Opry when they're going to bring up Lil Nas X, they're going to play Old Town Road and everybody, you know, the entire establishment will completely go wild for it. And it will be embraced as part of country history, just like Shania is now, just like Garth Brooks is now. Both of them were not, were, you know, were sort of, there was problems with them back in the nineties or just like, you know, in the seventies, in the fifties, it's, all on the same timeline. And even if Lil Nas X doesn't make any more country songs, that is a country song. It will forever be one. And in 20 years, all country, all, the entire country world will, will pretend that they were never against it. Also in 20, you know, now we're looking, and I loved, John was calling, um, we're trying to get Billy Ray Cyrus to come in on this. And that was one of the big challenges for, for coming in. But he's, he's definitely represented across the episode. But the fact that Billy Ray Cyrus had to co-sign Old Town Road to become a country hit and Achy Breaky Heart is now seen as like, well, okay, that's just what it sounded like in the 90s. That's a country song from then. But I lived through Achy Breaky Heart the first time and people were saying the same stuff. Of course, that's all throughout the episode. But I love, you know, John, you were calling uh, Billy Ray Cyrus the Eminence Grease of country music today and i still think about that as it's hilarious but also the fact that he is seen as legitimately country enough to make little nas country like i can't wait for whatever that song in 20 years is that little nas uh will go on to some other whippersnapper song and he'll be the eminence grease of what country was right now because there's no way that country music isn't changing and adapting because of what Little Nas did. And, and I think and, a lot of it too is there was so much going on. Sorry, Simon, just with the conversations around that song, precisely around is it country, is it not? What role is race playing in this? What role is the mixing of different genres and sounds playing in this? That it's more than just a one hit wonder. I mean, it's not like making a documentary about pop music in the 90s and being like, Two Princes by the Spin Doctors, the greatest <laughs> and best song ever that everyone will always remember and love and is important. Uh, you would look like a fool, but I think with uh, Old, Old Town Road kind of actually merits that sort of hyperbole. No offense to Two Princes or the Spin Doctors, rather. Hey, just go ahead now. Yeah. <laughs> hey, those guys invented wearing toques outside in summertime, so we got to give them that. What else are you going to um, wear when you play hacky sack in the park? That's true. <laughs> or devil um, sticks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Remember devil sticks? I do. <laughs> devil sticks evolution from Banger Films. Just <laughs> parking lot stoners, the series. Um now, just kind of a last question, you know, we, we talked about Manuel a bit, but were there any other sort of characters or ideas or interviews that were left on the cutting room floor that you guys would kind of like to shout out things that sort of tie into the episode as it exists, but might help us uh, think through it in a different way? Uh, um, well, just picking up on the Billy Ray thing, had he been in it, we certainly would have done more of a beat 
I think, on um, Achy Breaky Heart. And even though you do see it a little bit in the episode, we could have gone down a little bit of a path of the line dancing craze that was around Achy Breaky Heart. Because bringing line dancing into mainstream, like I think they were teaching it at my school, which is totally insane. Um, for that to have just been a normal, modern thing in the 90s, and for that song to have been so huge, and then for him to be seen in a different way now, I would have loved to have either um, begun or ended with Billy Ray, you know, just shooting straight from the hip about his personal experience and the redemption stories that could come out of that. Um, you know, he certainly comes across very well in the episode, so I don't feel like it's, we don't have that as a whole, but if he was a part of it, we would have definitely had different conversations with him. Yeah, yeah. There's so, I mean, weren't we working very diligently too to try to get an interview with either Rick Rubin or Glenn, and or Glenn Danzig about writing music for Johnny Cash? Yeah, we we definitely approached both of them. I mean, I think that it was right around the time that they were finishing up or launching that Rick Rubin uh, doc series. So I think that's I'm I'm kind of glad that we uh, that we didn't wind up with him because that story was sort of told in. Uh, in there a little bit more. Glenn Danzig would have been uh, a lot of fun. And I think that just the idea of having Glenn Danzig and Shania Twain in the same, uh, in the same documentary <laughs> would be, would be absolutely wonderful. Um, I'm sad we didn't get Billy Ray. Uh, that, that was the thing that we were sort of waiting on. Um, and in fact, I guess finally his publicist did say that he didn't have time to do it, but it, I, I feel like we were waiting to hear back for like almost a year. Um, in that story, I mean, it would have, it would have been great to, to see because he's sort of like the, in a way he's kind of the fulcrum between, you know, where we go back to the seventies and, uh, and to little Nas now, because I remember, um, this didn't make the episode obviously, but during the icky breaky heart, this is not country. He's shouldn't, you know, he's not authentic thing. Um, and I've seen a copy of this Waylon Jennings, uh, sent, um, a handwritten note to, to, to Billy Ray Cyrus, uh, saying, you know, this is what they, this is what they said to me in the seventies. And I'll tell you what, only outlaws get outlawed. And that's wait, was it Waylon Jennings or Johnny Cash? Wasn't it Johnny? No, it was Waylon Jennings. It was definitely Waylon Jennings. Uh, Um, and that's, and he told that to Lil Nas X. So this sort of, you know, the, the, the people that are, you know, beaten up by the authenticity stick, uh, there's a lineage of of these people going forward. So I think just uh, like Amanda's point, you know, one day Lil Nas will probably do that to somebody, uh, you know, hand the baton to somebody else in the in the country uh, brigade uh, or up and coming, you know, con- country artist. Uh, and that'll happen. Um, I think other than Manuel, though, no, no one else was left on the cutting room floor. Um, you know, there were a lot of amazing lines especially i'd say in brandy's interview because she was like an incredible um an incredible just person to talk to um and and gives an amazing interview uh her talking about the formation of the high women i wish that we had had a bit more time to work on that that was a segment in the film at one point but we just had to lose it for time and then my you know my my moment that i wish we had worked uh could be could have worked into that you know, if 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 these if these episodes in the series had like a, a post credit moment, I would have put in. I, I remember asking Booker T what his favorite country song was, and he just sang a little bit of "Hey, Good Looking" by Hank Williams to me. He he looked right in the camera and and, and did that, and that was an amazing moment. And I wish we could have just thrown that in. Um, but you know, say la vie. 
I just laughed because he said he's singing it to you. It's like as if he's in love with you and singing. <laughs> well, I, which would have also been cool. I mean, I do, I do, I do use an eye direct. So basically, the people that I'm interviewing are looking into the camera, but what they see is a mirror reflecting me, and like we're making eye contact. So anything anybody was said in any of the interviews was actually said right into my face. So I did experience Damn. Booker T. Jones singing a Hank Williams song directly into my eyes. <laughs> That's romantic as hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what a way to leave it. Um, well, one more thought I have, actually, if you'll indulge me, is it does seem that in this episode, in, in the intersection of country and pop and kind of in the series in general, we see this trend where it's like there's these people who kind of innovate or kind of rule breakers or outlaws who then in turn become accepted and come to define the sound of pop music. And then when they get to that position, you can either be a gatekeeper where you're trying to get people out and try to maintain that, or you can be, as you say, like a Waylon Jennings or a Billy Ray who sort of tries to pass that on. And I think that this episode is nice because it focuses on the people who who try to pass that feeling on and let those other people in instead of, you know, kicking up their boots and keeping them out. So, uh, Nice people only need apply to be on the show. And, and, and it also, it goes backwards too. Um, you know, we have Rick Rubin, you know, looking back and basically pulling, pulling Johnny Cash off the scrap heap of Nashville in the early nineties and bringing him back, giving him a new audience with his own sort of version of a pop rock crossover, uh, with those nineties records or nowadays Brandy Carlisle at a moment where she has just won a bunch of Grammys and has, you know, a lot of star power in her own right, reaching back and bringing Kenya Tucker uh, sort of out of quasi-retirement, um, kind of forcing her almost against her will to make this new record, which then won her her first Grammys, brought her back to the stage. So I think that that reaching across the generations can go both ways. And if you're looking for people who, in spirit at least, are, and I won't scare quote it this time, authentic, then you know, it's always, it's always a good thing to do and will always sort of help the wider world. If we're always bringing up the, the, the real people, let's say in, you know, bringing them in, it's uh, it's a positive thing. Yes. Build up, don't tear down. Um, okay. Guys, thank you so much for chatting about country pop, about country pop and everything in between uh, series producer, Amanda Burt and, director and Winona fan, Simon Ennis. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. See you later. This is Pop is a production by Banger Films. Amanda Burt is our series producer. Simon Ennis is the director of this episode. Tiffany Bowden edited the episode and John Semley wrote it. This podcast was produced by Melissa Vincent and Matt Charlton at Pigeon Row and engineered by Village Sound. Follow us on Instagram to stay up to date with all things This is Pop. Thank you.